0: home, there's always room for one more. Glad you're in the house today, whether you're visiting, I understand we got some soccer teams here, yeah, a few of you, yeah, glad you're here, some academies uh, from our conference visiting this weekend, welcome to Elevate, hope you have a good time at Southwestern and here at church this morning, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, amen, it's good to worship together this morning, hey, I want to let you, what's that, was there volleyball, okay, thanks Dean, appreciate that. Volleyball, my bad, my bad, volleyballers, so keep me honest, I appreciate that. Hey, here's what's coming up, if you want to stick around this week, talk to your sponsor, but you probably won't be able to, Uh, Infinite Hope 2022, Chasing Wisdom is happening this week, Uh, Thursday through Sabbath, and some of you that are part of our community regularly, this is the uh, summer of eternal goodbyes for me, because I keep coming back, even though we say, like, thank you, move on, you're the lead pastor now, et cetera, et cetera, I'm not going to be speaking in Elevate next week. Okay, I, some of you that were like, ooh, like who are we gonna have? Jonathan Coker on our lead team is gonna be with us Sabbath morning and we've got uh, another keynote speaker that will be with us as well. We're excited about this series. Uh, we've been, over the past couple of years, uh, we started out looking at how can we have hope in this kind of troubled time. Last year, we looked at the pursuit of happiness, how we find happiness in a life with Jesus. And then here, Infinite Hope, Chasing Wisdom, perhaps the key to happiness isn't an outcome, but it's a way of life. And maybe it's less about making the right decision and more about getting to know a person. And we're gonna be exploring that Next week, So I invite you to check it out. If you're not gonna be here, it'll be online Thursday night through Saturday night and including Elevate on a next Sabbath. Excited for that. A great opportunity to invite some family and friends. Some of you are like, I wonder if I can invite someone in my community to church and it not be weird. This is the one, uh, uh, hopefully we have more than that, but this is one of the ones that we intentionally uh, make sure that you can do that and it not be weird. Here's our engaged question this morning. How do we do the hard work of community? And we really like to be in community with other people until it gets hard, right? Until it's difficult, then it's like, ah, I don't know if I wanna relate, I don't know. Today, we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse 33, but before we go there, gotta talk through what we're looking at in Luke. Luke chapter seven is full of Jesus breaking down social norms, and he violates a whole bunch of taboos. Now, one of the ways that this has happened in my life, where I've broken a, a social norm, centered around laundry. And there, there's, I know we got some, some college guys here in the room. There's a way that you do laundry in the dorm, right? You take, yeah, some of you laugh, like you get it. Ladies, you're gonna just be, uh, it's just gonna atrocious what you're gonna hear. But you take all of your laundry, doesn't matter what color, doesn't matter what type, and you put everything as much will fit into the laundry, into the washer, you pour some uh, detergent on top of that, like a full cup or like two or three scoops because you want to make sure it's a good clean. You put your quarters in the machine, you jam them back, and then you hope and pray that your clothes get clean. Uh, and then you put them in the dryer real quick. And then if you pull them out of the dryer in between, like while they're still warm, they won't be wrinkly. But if they're wrinkly, you just kind of shake it a little bit and like things will be okay, right? So that's the dorm, guys, how you do laundry. I, maybe it wasn't you, I, this was me, right? So my wife and I had just been married come back from our honeymoon and got to do some laundry because we've been gone for a week and a half. And so I, being the person who's done his own laundry since he was like, I don't know, a teenager and did it in college, instinctively grabbed all of our laundry and just began to throw everything into the washer. And Melissa came around the corner and she's like, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing? That's not how, and I, and, and, I, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing the laundry right? In my mind, this is what, how you do laundry. He says, that is not how you do the laundry. And I got a very quick education in how to appropriately do laundry. And I've been a good boy ever since, right? There are social norms in our society, the way you do things and the way that you don't do things. And Jesus doesn't necessarily uh, do his laundry the wrong way, but he does approach a few people in some ways that isn't necessarily socially acceptable. The beginning of Luke chapter 7, he heals the Roman centurion's servants. Jesus approaches a foreigner, the guy who's occupying the land, who's representing empire. Jesus is willing to have a conversation with him and even heal his servant. The next story after that, Jesus interrupts a funeral. Can you imagine if someone stood up in the middle of a funeral and came down to the front where the casket is and said, go ahead and rise up and walk? That would be weird, right? We would uh, uh, escort that person just right out those doors and maybe those doors right there. But Jesus stops the funeral procession and he touches an unclean corpse and a casket. Remember, what Jesus touches becomes clean. The unclean thing that he touches doesn't affect him. He takes it on on our behalf. And he makes the unclean clean, breaks down that ceremonial law. He also breaks down their religious ideation. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and he's like, hey, are, are, are you the guy? Like you're the Messiah, right? You're, you're, you're the one. And Jesus says, well, what have you heard me doing? And they said, well, healing and doing this. He says, well, if it matches up with scripture, then, then I'm your guy. And Jesus affirmed John's the, John the Baptist's calling and he affirms his own calling as well. And he finishes that discourse with this, John chapter seven, verse 33. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating and drinking. This is Jesus speaking, eating bread and drinking wine. And you say, he's possessed by a demon. John the Baptist and his disciples fasted and prayed. And you call him a demon. Verse 34 in Luke chapter seven. The son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees, who Jesus is speaking to, You can't have it either way. Either John the Baptist is right in his fasting and prayer, or the Son of Man is right in his eating and drinking, but you're dissatisfied by both. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. What Jesus is saying, take a look at my life and how I act and see the fruit of wisdom born out in my life. And if the fruit matches up with what you understand with scripture, then you know you're on the right track. And notice, Luke points out again in this gospel that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Luke, being the good gospel writer, right? You think that maybe that's not the greatest title. Maybe Luke's going to kind of steer that in the other direction. But no, Luke leans in and begins to continue or continues to show us in the gospel of Luke how Jesus becomes more intimate friends with sinners. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 The story continues. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. This type of meal was not just a feast or a banquet that was celebrating a particular life circumstance. This was, in a lot of ways, a Greek symposium. And it snuck into the culture at the time. That a rich benefactor would invite a traveling speaker to his home. They would share a meal with one another and then the speaker would begin to, to share their philosophy or their teaching in a particular subject. And this is what this Pharisee is doing. And the homes at the time are not like the homes that we live in today that are very secluded from one another and you've got your fence and make sure that that's on the property line and anybody inside of that fence, I better know who it is and what they're doing or you're gonna very quickly be found on the other side of the fence, right? You've got security cameras, the the doorbell with the video camera that's just always watching. It freaks me out. And time I go to visit somebody's house and you like push the button and you're like, hi. <laughs> I right? hope you know the person on the other side. We live very secluded lives. Their homes at that time were built for community. There was often a public courtyard that everyone could have access to when the gates were open. And everybody in the community would know about this feast and would know about the the speaker that had come to the town. And so the Pharisee sets it up so that he's gonna be having this this dinner. Jesus is gonna be sharing his teaching and the community can enter into the court and there would be doors open to the banquet hall that the poor, the needy, those that weren't as affluent could come in. They could hear the teaching of the speaker and also grab a few scraps from the table once everybody had left. It's a society built around community. But there's something that happens at this feast that really makes this Pharisee, makes a skin crawl, and it makes, should make us a little bit uncomfortable as well. Luke 7, verse 37. The story continues. We have Luke 7. There we go. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. You've heard this story before. Verse 38. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus was who he said he was, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. You know this story. Dinner is interrupted. A woman of ill repute in society has come, and how this is interpreted by this Pharisee and by the other people gathered there, in a lot of ways, she's making a sexual advance to Jesus. You don't, as a woman in this culture, pull your hair down in public. That is saved for the bedroom and for your husband. So she's weeping at the feet of Jesus, making this public scene and making an advance. The room gets uncomfortable. It's weird, it makes Simon's, the Pharisee, his skin crawl. A woman was touching this rabbi and this rabbi wasn't doing anything about it. You see, our meals show us what we believe about each other. Simon had a particular belief, the Pharisee who will come to know his name in just a few verses. This Pharisee had an assumption about what this woman was doing and who she was. Jesus, on the other hand, knew her heart and he was reinterpreting that social interaction and turning it from something that was of bad morals to something that was good. Jesus should know what sort of woman is touching him. Perhaps the Pharisee should know what sort of person is being honored, understanding who Jesus is. You see, we're often not very far from the people that we're judging. I like how sociologist, author, and speaker, Brene Brown puts it in her TED Talk on the power of vulnerability. She says, we are those people, however you describe those people. Simon the Pharisee was othering this woman, that, those people, whoever they are. The truth is, We are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, one affair away from being those people. And she continues, the ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the ones bad things happen to, the ones we don't want living next door. We're often one circumstance away. And Jesus wants to wake Simon up to this reality. Luke chapter seven, verse 40. The story continues. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon is thinking that thought in his head and Jesus answers his thought. Jesus is a prophet because he can read Simon's mind. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. This would be the signal at this type of dinner that the visiting guest speaker was now ready to pontificate and share what they had come to share. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus says, Luke 7, verse 41, he told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. Verse 42 but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Verse 33, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said, you've answered well. See, in the same way that Nathan the prophet came to King David after his affair with Bathsheba, Jesus comes to this Pharisee, tells him a story. David implicated himself by identifying with the person in the story, casting judgment on who he thought was somebody else, but really pointing the finger back to himself. And Jesus is trying to help Simon understand in this moment that there's been, a bit, there's been a big debt forgiven, and this woman realizes it. She realizes that her debt has been forgiven, and what that is produced inside of her is worship and adoration to her Savior. She's come before Jesus weeping because there's no other thing that she can do other than to honor the person that has forgiven her. And Simon, oh Simon, don't you realize when a big debt has been paid, that produces big love. But if you've got just a little debt or you think you only have a little debt that causes you to judge and think badly about others, And a lot of us can relate with this, the announcement of student loan forgiveness up to $10,000, right? Somebody say amen. When a big debt is forgiven, that produces much love, much contentment. And often we ask in Bible stories, you know, in Sabbath school, which character are you like? Are you the Pharisee or are you the woman? But I think that's a bad question for this text because it's easy for us to identify and say, we wanna be the woman because we wanna be forgiven. But the real question in this story is who do we want to be? I would wager that we'd rather be Simon because his brokenness has not aired before everybody else. He's a, a teacher and he, he understands the law. He's got an understanding of scripture. He's well-respected in society. And Jesus simply comes to Simon, gives him a little slap on the wrist with a story and Simon gets to go on his way a little bit wiser. We don't really want to identify with the woman who's everything out in public. Everybody knows your dirt. You know what you did. And to be broken publicly humiliated. Simon's got it together. She's got everything on display. Like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it in the book, Life Together. Put it up on the screen for you. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. So here's the thing. Simon had a vision of what community looked like to him. And by creating that vision of that community and loving that vision of community, did not realize that the very dream he had alienated himself. Because if the woman was not welcome at the table, you bet Simon wasn't welcome at the table. And we don't pick this up from the text, but Ellen White alludes to in the book, Desire of Ages, that Simon was the one that led this woman into the business that she was in. And so whose sin is greater, the one knowing, the one tempting, bringing someone into a lifestyle that's gonna hurt and pervert their life or the person that unknowingly walks into that? Simon convicts himself. And we can have this vision and a dream of a community, but if we serve the vision and the dream instead of the community itself, that's where we get off track. And Jesus isn't done, Luke seven forty-four continues, then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, what? Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. Normally when you turn to someone, you're speaking to them, but Jesus is addressing them both. He turns to her because he wants her to know how grateful he is for her display and he wants to rebuke Simon in front of everything else, everybody else. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them and with her tears wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Verse 46, you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. See, Jesus sets this up and he says, Simon, I'm in your house And I would expect you to be the one that's hosting me, but do you know who's played host tonight? The woman. Simon, you didn't give me any of these things, what was normally culturally acceptable, but this woman has welcomed me as if she's the host of your house. And Jesus isn't trying to say that it's the duty of this man or this woman, but what he's ruminating on in front of them is that what has happened to her heart has transformed her to express back to Jesus love, worship, and adoration. But Simon's heart has not been transformed, and that's not being reflected back. And so Simon doesn't even do the simple favor of welcoming Jesus into his home. You see, our meals show us what we believe about community how we treat one another, how we, how we go around and how the meals that we eat, who we eat with and how we eat them tell us and others about what we believe our community should be like. Tim Chester puts it this way in the book, A Meal with Jesus. The meal table is an opportunity to give up our proud ideals by which we judge others and accept in their place the real community created by the cross of Christ with all its brokenness. You didn't know when you were having lunch, you were doing theology. People look at how we eat. I remember I was a student at Southwestern Avis University. I was working for spiritual life and development office and uh, Pastor Russ asked me to go pick up some uh, fruits and some breakfast items for a missions retreat that was happening that weekend. And I'm a person who loves fruit. So asking someone who like really loves something to buy it is probably not the best thing. And so I go to, go to H-E-B, a local grocery store, and I go into the fruit section, and I'm like, ooh, I like bananas. I think bananas would be good. And like, ah, oh, blueberries, strawberries, grapes. And like all of a sudden, before I know it, the cart's just full. And I've just been in the produce section, right? And I start to get looks because of how full the cart is. And people are like, is he going on like a juice cleanse? Or like, what's going on with this? And it got so full that the, the manager of the produce department seeks me out and comes find me and he says, Sir, thank you for your business. I so much appreciate you shopping at HEB. Please come again. You see, the meals that we eat, and how we eat our meals, show us what we think about community. For me, I don't know how to buy food for people. I've gotten a little bit better at it, but I'd rather have way too much than not enough, right? Man, in that room, that kitchen that we put fruit in, there was just like fruit all over the place. And I was like, Pastor Russ, I'm sorry. Like, I just, I didn't know like 30 people, we probably could have fed 300, right? I love how Jesus finishes this interaction. Luke chapter seven, verse 47. I tell you, her sins and they are many, Been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Verse 49. The men at the table said amongst themselves, Who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? Verse 50. And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three times in this story, Luke tells us that this woman is a sinner And three times in this story, Jesus is described as forgiver Let that sink in for a moment Because when I came across that this week, I was like, whoa, that's cool No matter who you are, where you come from, whatever, whatever walk of life you are Whatever brokenness you've encountered Jesus is forgiver. And the forgiveness that he's extended to this woman is available to us today. You see, as we're learning from meals, right? Our meals show us what we believe about grace because at this table, Pharisee doesn't want this woman there, doesn't want her there, isn't extending grace towards her, but Jesus is willing to eat this meal and extend grace to this woman. No works involved. Our meals show us what we believe about justification. You see, through faith, all are welcome as they are, but through works, you got to change yourself before you show up. You got to do some stuff so you can fit into this community. I believe Jesus is calling us to a community of broken people, finding family and healing around a table. And it's amazing. You know, we look at the world that we live in, the, the multiplicity of beliefs that are scattered all over this country and this world. And it's amazing that a group of people, imagine if we took a poll today and asked you where politically or ideologically, or what do you thought about foreign policy, that we get a whole bunch of different answers. But it's amazing that though we differ on certain beliefs, we can come together centered on who Jesus is. It's the center of community. Jesus on a cross broken on our behalf so that we might be healed. That's community. Bonhoeffer continues the book, Life Together. He puts it this way. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we participate. Second part of that quote the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. That's powerful. I think that'll preach. But we look around and we're all broken people, right? There's stuff that we've done, certain things that we're addicted to, certain struggles that we may have. And we could define one another by that, right? But I think if we did the hard work of community, it would look something like this. Put a picture up on the screen for you. This is called Kintsugi. It's a Japanese art form that takes broken pieces of pottery and transforms them into works of art. I don't know what's broken you. and I don't know if you feel like the small piece or the big piece or your whole life looks like that. I don't know, but what God does in his marvelous grace is somehow piece us back together, both individually and as a community. And Jesus himself, through his golden promises, puts us together so that when people look at us, they see something that was once broken, that was once set aside, that was once fit for the blue filing bin. Trash can. It's now beautiful and brought together because it's centered on Jesus. See, our community is formed and reformed by our hospitality. How we welcome people, the meals that we eat, who we eat them with, and our conversations therein. They tell us how we preach the gospel. The way we live that together and is articulation of our theology, our meals. Our hospitality, the way we treat one another should be a direct reflection of our view of grace. That all are welcome at the table, that there's a Jesus who takes our broken pieces, interlays them with the golden shine of his promises that the broken in proximity to Jesus can be made whole. Luke 7, though it teaches us about forgiveness. It teaches us about grace. Luke 7 is a call to community. We all have a seat at the table and we celebrate what Jesus has done in our lives.